0: This is Bug in Your Ear. Dispatches from the Surgical Infection Society. I'm Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon and surgical infection enthusiast. In each episode of this podcast, we meet the physicians and researchers at the forefront of surgical infection research and hear about the groundbreaking and sometimes backbreaking work they're doing to improve care for our patients. Welcome. Have you ever tried to do a randomized trial? How about one across multiple time zones? enrolling almost 6,000 patients across 7 countries in 54 hospitals, some of which don't have reliable internet or electricity. One of the great things about practicing surgery is that it keeps you humble, and talking with my guests in this episode was truly humbling. Dr. Soji Adamuya and Drew Ghosh are two of the lead authors of the FALCON trial, Reducing Surgical Site Infection in Low-Income and Middle-Income Countries, a Pragmatic, Multicenter Stratified, Randomized, Controlled Trial. The study was conducted by the NIHR Global Research Health Unit on Global Surgery and published in October 2021 in The Lancet. We'll put a link to the article in the show notes. The study they designed and implemented answered an important question in surgery about whether expensive chlorhexidine or cheap betadine and expensive antibiotic-coated sutures or cheap plain ones are better at reducing surgical site infections. But as you'll hear, the results of this trial are nothing compared to the incredible pragmatic design of the study and the infrastructure that they built for future work, in the middle of a global pandemic, no less. A special pleasure is that my guests are two fellow pediatric surgeons. Dr. Soji Adamuya, Professor of Surgery and Chief of Pediatric Surgery at the University of Lagos, who also serves as director of the NIHR Global Surgery Unit in Nigeria, deputy editor-in-chief of the African Journal of Pediatric Surgery, and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Clinical Sciences, which is the journal of the clinical faculty at the University of Lagos, and Mr. Drew Ghosh, a pediatric surgeon and pediatric urologist who's worked all over the world and is currently based in India. Soji and Drew, thank you so much for joining us on A Bug in Your Ear. It is such a pleasure uh, to be able to finally meet you. We've been emailing back and forth for several weeks, um, trying to find a time that works between multiple time zones across the world. And to me, that's sort of emblematic of of just how impressive it is that you have accomplished what you did with uh, with the Falcon trial, which I want to talk about now, a study that really crosses every continent and has Gotten a lot of surgeons and surgical leaders from across the world to collaborate on a really important question and a deceptively simple question about how we can reduce surgical site infections and whether the sophisticated technologies that we keep coming up with to try to reduce these risks are actually any better than the tried and true, inexpensive solutions that exist already. Soji, I know that you were one of the leaders of the trial, and maybe could you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in, and how you were involved in the study design and putting this together? Thank
1: you very much, Jonathan. It's quite interesting. Um, so I think the story actually started somewhere in 2013, um, when this group was just starting together as Global Search Collaborative, and um, we were going to do a cohort study across different hospitals across the world, and um, the essence of that, which has been published in BJS, was looking at mortality following emergency surgeries. Um, And following that, it was shown that the mortality in low- and middle-income countries were about three times higher than high-income countries. And then we looked at the morbidity, and the morbidity also showed that Surgical side infections was the highest morbidity um, in lower middle income countries. So Global Surge 2 came up and that was to look at surgical site infections among surgical patients. And it was then that we had a meeting in Birmingham, I think in the fall of 2016, where people who had contributed to the first two cohort studies gathered together to look to prioritize the needs in low- and middle-income countries. So I remember that Daru was at that meeting and Philip from India. Um, and then, so it, that was where this idea of looking at surgical side infection and a randomized controlled trial. And at that time, the WHO, I think around that 2016, also came up with guidelines. Um, and what, some of the things that WHO had recommended were the fact that we should use um, antibiotic impregnated sutures as well as um, alcoholic clorexidine. So this group of surgeons across the world, I think in the room we were less than 50, decided that, okay, we're going to look at it in a two-by-two um, trial formation. And the idea was that there would be four groups. So... All these, the, the, the first thing which I think is important is the fact that the low and middle income partners were there at the conceptualization. They were there to prioritize that surgical side infection was something that matters to them. And also they were there when the methodology was being developed and we looked at how the reality and the logistics of being able to do it. And so that was how how it started. And then eventually we were lucky to get funded. And then um, we rolled out the trial.
0: That's so fascinating and I think so important, right? Like, get the people in the room who are actually facing this problem and ask them, you know, what the problem they need to solve is and, and how the study could work. I feel like so often a study like this would be funded and sort of the logistics organized by the manufacturers of chlorhexidine or something, right? And, and instead to have the actual practitioners who are affected by these guidelines and changes and, and proposed changes makes so much sense. Drew, can you tell me a little bit about your role in the trial and, and, and what it was like to implement this at your center?
2: I got involved a little later with Global Surge. It was, I think, um, about 2017 is when I really got involved with Global Surge. But I've been working in India as a pediatric surgeon, and I used to do a lot of um, work in in rural hospitals in India. And our countries are a bit different from the West, where where we have a major problem of uh, surgical site infections. But for some reason, it's something that is so prevalent that we don't really pay a lot of attention. It is something that is expected. But it does lead to a lot of morbidity and mortality, especially in speciality like mine. And then with out-of-pocket healthcare expenditure, it makes a huge dent in uh, in the lives of families. So uh, when this discussion started about um, what study we do during the prioritization cycle, it was quite interesting to see that these are simple points in surgical care, which uh, people haven't really paid attention to, and they have far-reaching effects. And that's when I started, really started getting interested in in global surgery. And then when I went back to India and I talked to people about this, it really started a conversation. And when we started, we we thought we'd start small. Um, Looking back, I think we probably shouldn't have because a lot of more people were interested in doing this. So we started initially with five hospitals across the country. India is a country of huge diversity, huge amount of differences in weather, population, income, etc. And so we started looking at uh, various stratas of uh, healthcare, both in rural, urban, big hospitals, small small hospitals, try and get uh, real world data. I- India has extremely good healthcare and extremely bad healthcare. India has extremely good research which comes out, but then it's not necessarily the real world data that comes out of India. It is from big hospitals, but most of India still lives in the villages um, and and the smaller cities. So our thought was to get everybody involved so that we get the right picture out of uh, what we are doing rather than just concentrating on big cities, etc. And that's where we, we went with Falcon when we started off.
0: It's so impressive, the scope of the trial. Because you can imagine this trial being done in one hospital, you know, relatively straightforward. Although I will say that even, you know, in a high-income country where there's a huge focus on academic productivity, so often this trial would be done as a retrospective trial after you changed your suture brand and just looking to see if there was a change in, in infection rates. One thing that really impresses me about the trial is that you really committed to the randomized controlled trial and, you know, that level one evidence. But then also rather than doing it in five hospitals, you did it in 54 hospitals in seven countries, right? It was Benin, Ghana, India, Mexico, Nigeria, Rwanda, and South Africa, and managed to conduct a randomized trial across you know a huge swath of the, of the world. Can you talk a little bit about like, the randomization process and sort of the central logistics of making sure that each hospital was randomizing appropriately, and just how you all scheduled meetings to talk to one another.
1: So the randomization, what happens is once a patient has been found to be eligible for the trial anywhere in the world, they will either call or they can send through an app to the central randomizing unit. And then the randomization is done. And then after that, In most of the hospitals, you have a research nurse um, that coordinates the randomization process. Um, And that research nurse is also trained to consent for the trial. The surgical team consents for surgery, but the nurse can consent to um, recruit into the trial. So once that is done, the central Randomizing unit will tell them which of out of the four. So there are four possible groups that a patient could be. So it's either the patient is in al- alcohol chlorhexidine and plain sutures, or alcohol chlorhexidine and triclosan sutures, or povidone iodine and plain sutures, or povidone iodine and triclosan sutures. And this randomization, I need to say, is usually done at the red line. So we don't allow you to do it um, for elective cases in clinic, or you, and you don't do it on the wards. You do it when the anesthetists call for the patient, such that it's almost sure that that patient is going to be going for surgery. Because as you can imagine, in low- and middle-income countries, many things could um, lead to cancellation of surgeries, including power outage, including lack of scrubs, including several other things. And and, and that's just the truth about the facts on the ground. So when we were thinking about the methodology, we agreed that by the time the anesthetist is calling for the patient, it's almost sure that that surgery will take place. Once that is done, then the patient is handed over the necessary materials by the research nurse to the surgical teams to use. Occasionally, there may be changes, but that will be reflected in in the case note. If for for one reason or the other, for example, maybe the surgeon changes the mind about the incision um, size because one of the things in the eligibility criteria is that the incision must be at least more than five centimeters. So if for one reason or the other, you change to laparoscopy or whatever, then the patient has been randomized, but that entry will go into the case now. The other thing that's quite important is that The team that does the randomization and are not blinded are not the same team that assesses the wound at the end of the day. So in some of our centers, we enlisted physicians like pediatricians to do that assessment or plastic surgeons who will not be be involved in GI surgery in children or in adults too, because we also use cesarean sections and um, general surgeons and urologists. So that is how the randomization went. And it was easy to do because there were several trainings. So there were at least two layers of training for each of those 54 hospitals. The first layer of training is a soft SIV. That's the site in session visit in which it's done online. And then the second, because this was pre-COVID, we did a hard um, SIV. In Nigeria, for example, we had 12 hospitals and we brought the um, institutional PIs and deputy PIs together from those 12 hospitals to have a at, face-to-face site in visits session visit with people from Birmingham coming for the training. So it really helped everyone to be able to flow. And then if there are challenges, we have meetings from time to time to troubleshoot those challenges.
0: That's great. It just seems again, it's like a a deceptively simple idea of this two by two analysis, but like just like the ultimate in pragmatic studies, right? Like when do you randomize and how do you do that? And it's 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 great that you were able to do that like just in time randomization as the patient's wheeling back. Juve, what was your experience as an investigator in the trial? That like did it run fairly smoothly? Did you feel as though it was a a straightforward process, or were there hiccups along the way?
2: We're not used to doing randomized clinical trials in surgery. I no—I don't know what the experience in, in the United States is, but when we were sort of exploring sites, etc., we were quite surprised to find that there's hardly any randomized clinical trials done in surgery around the world, <laughs> and um, certainly not in, in, in countries like ours. So it was completely new for a lot of surgeons to do a randomised clinical trial and an RCT of this um, uh, 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 such a huge RCT across the world. So no, things were not smooth. I would not won't say that, but um, and we did make mistakes in the beginning. Fortunately, we made those mistakes before the trial started. We had multiple meetings with theatre staff, with the research staff that we had recruited, uh, with surgeons, with anaesthetists. And then we started doing dummy runs on patients. So we would make small slips of the randomization things and put it in a bowl and pick out something and then follow the entire process again and again. I'm, I'm, I think for about a month, we did multiple dummy runs in the first site. And this is what we repeated in the other sites in India. So that when we finally got to the point when the trial was going to start, that's when um, we sort of hit the ground running. The other thing that we learned along the way is um, things about ethics committees, about national approvals, about um, paperwork, about bureaucracy. Uh, when you're doing a trial on a national scale with an international um, uh, collaborator, it is it is not easy because, you know, there are various things that we didn't know these things existed, really. And so so there were a lot of paperwork that needed to be done, which we learned along the way. Uh, we made mistakes. In fact, uh, our national approvals were sent back to us saying that this is, uh, this is not done. We cannot give you approval because this is wrong and that is wrong. And so we had to go back and do that. And then we got the good thing about Falcon when we started, was the entire team was involved, you know, surgeons, um, research staff, nurses, nurses. Um, um, internet can be iffy in some time, sometimes in our country, so whether the randomization, if somebody in one site is not able to randomize, especially if it's a rural site and they're not getting internet, they would phone us up at any time of the day and night, and emergencies, you know, they happen at midnight, so we were on call um, across the country in about 10 sites throughout uh, day and night, just in case somebody is not able to randomize, so then somebody else randomizes, and then we use WhatsApp um, to great effect. So there are a lot of chatter was on WhatsApp uh, to see how sites are doing, um, and uh, what, is, what are the problems happening in randomization. Where, where are the interventions placed? Uh, do we place them in theater? Because they might get used for some other surgery which is not part of this trial. So you wouldn't want somebody in plastic surgery to start using um, the interventions which was meant for an abdominal surgery. So that kind of stuff that happened because, you know, a lot of plastics, orthopedics, these guys do a lot of emergencies. And most of our hospitals are general hospitals rather than specialty hospitals. So, yes, it was not smooth to begin with, but I think we learned a lot. And the good thing that we did uh, was did a lot of dummy runs um, before we, we got started. And I, that's why I think eventually things just fell into place.
0: In the end, you were able to enroll almost 6,000 patients, 5,700 across all those sites. And I can only imagine, you know, having worked with the bureaucracy at my single institution, what it must be like to work at the bureaucracy of 54 hospitals across seven countries speaking different languages. So, I mean, just a, a momentous achievement. Talk a little bit about the results and, and how the results have changed your practice, and the practice of surgeons across the world?
1: Initially, when we saw the results, so we had a statistical analytical plan, and then we even wanted to analyze children. But children, as you'll see, was less than 15%, I think about 14%. And we saw that there was really no difference, more or less like a negative um, result. But we then saw that even in that, there was something very, very um, important for us in low- and middle-income countries. And the first one is guidelines prepared in high-income countries cannot be introduced to low- and middle-income countries like cut and paste. Because, as you will imagine, Jonathan, for you to be here, I'm sure you must have been involved in some amount of global surgery. You'll know that the disparity in access and in resources is among us. And therefore, we saw that when the WHO guidelines that says, okay, they should use triclosan suture, by the way, um, many of the, those guidelines were not randomized control trials, or even if they were, they were very small numbers. Um, and then they did not include low- middle income and middle-income uh, and, countries. And the issue there is, in many low- and middle-income countries, like Nigeria, for example, 80 to 90% is out-of-pocket expenditure. And triclosan is about five times more expensive than plain sutures. So the first import of this study is that for surgeons, you are confident to be able to use the cheaper alternatives without having the burden that the patients could have higher surgical site infection rates. So you are more confident to engage the parents of your patients, for those of us who are pediatric surgeons, or your patients, to say, look, these options, they are exactly the same. The evidence shows. And then for the patients in low- and middle-income countries, they are able to spend less and still achieve exactly the same thing. So I think it's it's really practice changing, and it's, um, it's good that the evidence is out there. And I hope that with These kind of podcasts, people in low-income countries can be bold to use the cheaper alternatives and know that their patients are going to have exactly the same outcome.
2: Just to add on to what Soji is saying, A, surgeons like a lot of toys. Generally, a lot of these things that we use, um, and this is not just with with the Global South, it's everywhere, there are a lot of these things that we use without evidence. A lot of people using medicated sutures probably don't even know that they're using medicated sutures. What has happened is there has been good marketing in a hospital, so instead of non-medicated sutures, medicated sutures have found their way into the storeroom and into the theaters. Like Soji said, in most of our countries, a lot of uh, healthcare expenditure is out-of-pocket healthcare expenditure. So while the surgeon doesn't know, the nurse doesn't know that this, that, that triculose and sutures are expensive, um, the the cost of that is being transmitted on to patients. So, um, so that's, I think, the biggest thing that will come out, not just in low and middle income countries, I'm sure in high income countries as well, because the evidence shows that you don't need to use these switches. These are things that could bring down. It just might be a drop in the ocean, but it is a drop at the end of the day. And, and you know, at some point of time, things like this will bring down healthcare expenditure expenditure across, across the world, not just in low and middle income countries. I'll just finish. In the theatre here in the UK, you will have um, in the scrub room two bottles of chlorexidine and uh, one bottle of uh, iodine. And when you have to paint, you don't have iodine, which is a cheaper option. So these are things that will affect practice, not just in our countries, it will affect practice elsewhere. The other thing that I think will come out of this is that if surgeons look at this paper and read about it, then they probably will get in the head that are we using things without thinking, can we use things with evidence and in the process also bother about the economics of healthcare? And when I talk about health economics, you know, a lot of us discuss health economics in terms of macroeconomic type of health economics. But, you know, at the end of the day, in many of our countries, the healthcare expenditure is very low from the government, but it's mostly out of pocket. Microeconomics will matter where it comes to the health economics at the bedside, you know, where patients are involved in the health economics. And so I think the things that will probably change, hopefully, is a behavior where surgeons and other um, healthcare professionals think twice before using something, see if there is evidence especially if it is expensive stuff. In countries like ours, we have to uh, reach out to patients with good surgical care, give them access to that, but the economics also have to be managed. In countries like ours, there's no point in doing a big surgery if that's going to end up starving the entire family. So, you know, it's a balance and uh, we have to find that balance here. So you say one patient, but the family starts starving, it becomes pointless eventually.
0: Yeah. It's such an extraordinary perspective for me because you give me too much credit. Soji, I, I have gotten to where I am here, working exclusively in the United States um, with exclusively in academic medical centers in major U S cities in places where honestly, like we just prep with whatever we want and don't give it a second thought. And we, we use the suture that is in the room. And I'm sure it's not the cheapest. And and my residents make fun of me for trying to use, you know, one suture to to make two ties, you know? It's sort of a game now. Like I, I see it, can I do an entire like appendectomy with a single, you know, Vicral? But it's a game. There's no downstream effect from it that I would ever detect, right? But the notion that that people in the in that situation, right, where resources are effectively unlimited, are sort of Declaring by fiat that something is better and that the world needs to now do that, right? They need to use chlorhexidine, they need to use these antimicrobial sutures, and then just sort of expecting that, you know, that guideline will be taken up and that will we'll be of a benefit, I, I think... Having had this conversation, I'm much less likely to just sort of take that on faith going forward. The study you did is, is effectively a negative trial, right, in some ways, right? You've, you basically showed there is no difference. People often talk about negative trials as being sort of a, a failure. And I think this is such an example of a, of a negative trial being incredibly important at a really pragmatic level. Like, people will eat because this trial was completed,
1: I think I, I can't agree with you more. I think um, it, 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 it buttresses the fact that, you see, nothing about us without us. You know, um, because the truth of the matter is, roof was saying something, and I saw that you actually smiled when he said it, that um, in some of the rural hospitals, there are challenges with internet. You know, when I was at King's, because I was at King's for a Commonwealth Fellowship, for six months, there was no power outage. Once I don't remember, there was I don't I didn't need to think about internet. I didn't need to think about security issues. I just go to theater. I get my scrubs and I go to and I go to work. It's not ex- exactly like that here, and 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 there are different challenges that makes um it to that when the guidelines are being written, it should be bespoke. And I think it's this this is one of the things that this trial has actually brought to the fore, that there could be collaboration between high-income and low-income countries, um, but that collaboration is better if we start early. Like I told you the storyline, it was right from prioritization of what is important to us, and we picked surgical site infection. There are a lot of other things we've done um, since then, as you you may be aware, we've done a lot of work on COVID surge, which was just by chance, but that collaboration was able to carry through. So I feel that very strongly that once that um, synergy is there, then we will be able to achieve far more
0: together. And that gets to my, my next question. What's next? I mean, you have, you built this extraordinary infrastructure. You have now taught 54 hospitals who may never have done a randomized trial before how to do randomized trials. It seems like you've you've created an incredible platform for future work. So what's uh, what's next in line? So
2: the things that have come out, and again, collaborative research, in my opinion, is the way to go, where voices are heard from uh, from countries of our part of the world, rather than we just just listening to voices coming uh, from high income countries, you know, because like Soji said, some of that stuff is not translatable into countries like ours. And again, you see, most of the world's population is in the global south rather than in the global north. And that's where if we want to make a dent and make people healthier, that's where the target has to be. Now, people have done that for uh, non-surgical stuff, but for surgical stuff, this it's never been a priority. We like often children of, of health care, you know, surgeons. And, and I, I look at pediatric surgery as uh, as children who have not, have not even been born for healthcare. So, it is very important that we our voices are heard so what Falcon and the the collaborative has done is that it has uh, made surgical research possible. It has set up a platform and structure for doing surgical research in India. We started with five hospitals with falcon so it's on, on our what we call the hub and spoke model. there were five hospitals including the hub. presently, we are working out on trials in thirty five hospitals across the country. so in a period of say it was 2019 three years we have moved from five hospitals to thirty five hospitals doing surgical research now these are include hospitals in the remotest parts of India where we've set up you know research nurses research assistants even ethics committees we have set up ethics committees and registered them with the national body so that they can do research which is ethical and is approved. For cohort studies, we are now up to 80 sites across India. So we sort of cover almost all of the country. So you, The evidence that comes out of many of our hubs is actually representative of the country, not of a big city, say, in Delhi or Mumbai or, some, or one of those places. It's, it's something that is come on, coming out from far remote in the northeastern part of India or up in the Himalayas. That's where it, the evidence is coming out from. After that was done, then we started moving on to so we did a you know a two-by-two two RCT. So our next trial was what we call cheetah, and this is a cluster RCT. To be fair, I'd never heard of a cluster RCT. before we started doing cheetah, so we decided doing cluster RCTs. So cheetah is again with surgical site infections, and something that you know, when I was a medical student, the surgeons of that generation used to change gloves before closing um, uh, wounds, especially in emergencies. And that sort of went out. When I became a surgeon, well, why should I do that? I, I don't do that. I just clean with that. So we started testing out whether that makes a difference now in, um, in decreasing surgical site infections. And that's the trial we've just finished. Uh, I think in a year and a half, we recruited 13,000 odd patients across the world. In India, we recruited about 4,000 patients um, in in a year and a half uh, and this does not include cesarean sections, which is the most common operation done in many of our countries. So, so this is without cesarean sections. So the interest has been used. We have to tell sites, and no, I'm sorry, we can't take you. We have 21 sites open in India for, for cheetah. Along with that, we started working on cancer and cancer care. And we did a trial called Crane, uh, where we started the assessing preoperatively the nutritional levels of patients and whether that is going to affect them postoperatively in terms of uh, recovery as well as surgical site infections. And now we are developing our own locally sourced nutritional supplement, which we will be giving to these patients um, and trialing them whether that improves their nutritional level as they go in for cancer surgery. When we moved on to perioperative care, uh, where we are doing a trial called Penguin. And by the way, none of these animals are available in India for some reason. <laughs> but um, where we are looking at um, chlorhexidine mouthwash before intubation, whether that decreases the chances of pneumonia. So we have moved from both intraoperative to perioperative care. And our next step will be postoperative care. We were trying to make... Um, do studies on behavioral changes in a post-operative ward where we have paucity of personal. In, in a low and middle-income country, you might not have a good recovery ward. You might not have good nurses. You might have one nurse between 10 patients. And how do we catch signs of danger and improve care so that our patients don't land up in the ICU? Because that, again, increases cost. So we, we're trying to model something which will, which will change behavior. Along with that, we did a lot of cohort studies, um, et cetera, And then the most important thing, now the studies are being designed in our country. So when Falcon started, a lot of discussion, but finally the study was designed in Birmingham and and we conducted it. But now we have ideas coming from our countries where we are designing the studies ourselves. And we are asking the questions, we are running it. So it's become sort of huge in what we can get in the future. We have studies which are relevant to our countries, designed in our countries, run in our countries, and maybe analyze in our countries, along with collaboration with high income high income countries where obviously the infrastructure is much better. So we have made a, a network of surgical research across the world, you know, and you know stuff can come out from anywhere. And we are very uh, we, we produce studies very fast and we recruit very fast. So your results don't have to wait for five six years for uh, to be to come out in the open.
1: You know, you mentioned that, actually, we just stopped recruitment on the 31st of March for Cheetah, and that was in spite of COVID-19, in spite of the fact that there there were shutdowns and all that. So it also shows the resilience of the infrastructure that's on ground. But more importantly is the lessons that we have also learned, including myself. I mean, so... I remember that when we were going to start Cheetah in my center um, um, and we wanted to involve colleagues from other units, some of them wrote to the ethics chairman that there is no place in the world and there is no study in the world where you can conduct that study without initiating consent from the patient. So, because this was a cluster randomized trial, you cannot consent the patient at the recruitment level because it is the hospital that is randomized. And so, it took us to show them the NEJM study on safe surgery, save lives, the checklists, you know, that at at, at the commencement of the study, there was no way you would be gaining consent from individual patients. And so it was also a learning point. So I mean, it was it was humbling to them when they saw that paper and saw that. Well, this has been done, and they, it has changed their own practice because they use um, the checklists themselves in theatre. So I think there are so many things that um, we have learned from doing some
0: of this work. I'm not going to lie; I am extraordinarily humbled and honored. And just proud for our specialty of pediatric surgery that it's two pediatric surgeons that I have on the line talking about this extraordinary work. And I want to hear more. I cannot wait to read the cheetah study, the penguin study, the crane study. So much obviously coming down the pipeline that is just making important pragmatic differences in the lives of so many people. It's inspiring to me because I feel like so often we sort of do work here that you know is incremental change to develop some new sophisticated stem cell technology that you know will affect 10 people affect them a lot potentially but just taking a step back and saying like should i be changing my gloves i mean these are questions that i ask and that we talk about and that we don't have great answers for so i think even in a first world situation like these are questions that are going to really impact the way that i practice surgery So thank you both so very much for coming, and um, it truly has been an honor. Thanks for joining this conversation with the Surgical Infection Society. This episode of Bug in Your Ear was produced by me, Jonathan Kohler. Production assistants from Heather Evans, Lynn Heido, and Diane Catalano. Special thanks to SIS member, Global Surgeon, and old friend, Dr. Tom Weiser, who suggested the Falcon trial would make a great episode. This episode was mixed and edited by Orlando Magaña, who also composed the theme music. If you like what you heard, please rate and review this podcast so others can find it. And consider joining the Surgical Infection Society, truly one of the great medical societies out there. We'll be back soon with more stories of the SIS.